Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is God's word, and let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for Sunday. We thank you for a church. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christmas. And Lord, we thank you for grace. We ask that you speak to us through your word this morning, through a recollection of the themes of Scripture, through a rehearsal of the love of Christmas. Lord, would you speak to us in a way that opens our eyes as blind as they're prone to be, unstop our ears they're as, as prone they are to be stopped. And Lord, would you give us enough grace to give to someone else the answer to life's most important question. Thank you for this time together. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it is the second week of Advent, as David has mentioned, and our focus today is love. Last week it was hope. Next week it will be joy. In the week of Christmas it will be peace. Now, the Word itself, the Scriptures, has much to say about love. It's the Scriptures that tell us that God is love. Uh, you may have heard of your Bibles as a love letter addressed to you from God. I remember hearing it put that way uh, as a child. It's also the, the Scriptures where we learn it's said by Jesus and certainly said of Jesus that greater love hath no man than this, that he would lay down his life for another or for his friends. And we've already sung about love. Uh, Christmas carols and hymns have their share of that definition of love. One that I knew that was not going to be covered today, but will by the time we get to Christmas, I'm sure, is O Holy Night. And from this song, we sing, or I read at the moment, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. I don't know if you ever considered law to be loving but his law is loving. It keeps us from the things that would harm us and positions us to flourish as he so designed if we're obedient. And his gospel is peace. It's what we just read. Christmas is about Christ and the business of reconciliation between a God who created us and a creation that rebelled against him. That's what Jesus came to do. We'll probably read this at some point before Christmas in these weeks of Advent, but it's in 1 John where he just bluntly says the reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. I'm not sure you ever received a Christmas card with that <laughs> verse featured, but that's Christmas, and that's love. 
unspeakable, amazing love. But if we're going to talk about love and we're going to talk about Christmas, how do we make a connection between love and Christmas and do so by use of the Scriptures? That would be our our task today. And I think the best way to do that is to visualize it. it. And it's tough to visualize something like love that we're so apt to feel as much as we think through. To visualize it by use of a love story. When you tell me, which would you rather? And let's say you're trying to explain love to your child or Lord help you, an adolescent. (laughs) Do you go to the bookshelf and grab the dictionary and read to them a dictionary definition of love? You don't want to hear that any more than they do. You could get fancy. You could scour the academic journals for philosophical sketch of love and the human behavior. That's worse. You might start by telling them a story of mom and dad or granddad and grandma. Or you might open your Bibles and talk about the greatest love story ever told. And I think if we're going to study love as it's given to us in Scripture, we've got to admit it's given to us in a story, a narrative that starts in Genesis and it ends in Revelation, but it gets really good about the time angels gather, star in the sky, shepherds out in their field, Watching by night, there's royalty coming from the, 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 the foreign lands. Something's about to happen. We just sang about the silent night. So we'll study a story. We'll visualize it as it's depicted in Scripture. Now, we probably need to at least mention that the story's going to involve its dark side as well. And we're fully aware and equipped to understand that the love of God is something we know not of apart from Him. Our definition of love is, for the most part, a selfish definition. If you look at love in in culture, and and we, we tend to think of love in love songs or love letters. We read a love story or watch a love story, but at the basis of it all, it's kind of a dark story if we get right down to the, the bottom of our self-interests. Usually, even things that sound lovely like finding one's soulmate, if we're not careful, that, that's basically just finding another person whose self-interests are similar to ours for a span of time, maybe not until death do us part, but about half the time until... Our self-interest and expectations are no longer met. And that relationship is dissolved. Our love is fickle. It's temporary. And any of us that have any years on us at all know that even simple relationships, not just a marital relationship, but family relationships, friendships, relationships between colleagues, at their best, they're difficult. They're never easy. I've never 
found a relationship to be easy unless it was dreadfully one-sided. But if it's actually two-sided, if there's give and take, it's difficult. And at worst, I think some of the deepest human grief and pain can be the result of broken relationships that once were important but are demolished, maybe at our own hand. All of this we find in Scripture. It's not strange to us because we've lived there. Again, if we have any years on us at all. So, if we're asking the question, why is that, and we believe our Bibles, we have the answer because we live under a curse. A curse that is the result of broken fellowship with our Creator. And we've got to admit that if we're not right with the God who made us, it's hard to be right with the other people He made too. If we're wrong this way, we can't be right this way. So the story of God's love, we began last week with this 30,000 feet view of the themes of Scripture. Beginning in Genesis, that's where the love story begins. By the third chapter, the recipient of God's love has been unfaithful by breaking the one command that was given, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The relationship was not without hope, we learned. This veiled glimpse of the seed of the woman and the snake, there was enmity put there. But then we learned that sometime in the future that the snake will bruise his heel, but he, the descendant of the woman and man's race, will bruise his head. One is a debilitating injury, the other is a mortal, deadly wound. And we learned, of course, that the cross is the heel wound. It is finished, is the crushing blow to the head of the snake that brought the lie that began sin back in the garden. So it's not without hope. No relationship ever is. But the fracture could only be mended from one side from that point on because the other side was forever blinded by its own guilt. The other side is the only one who maintained its integrity. That would be God's side, our side, the blind and the lost side. So though it would span generations of time, our Bible tells us that God would relentlessly pursue the restoration of His wayward people by means of the most drastic of measures, the ultimate of sacrifices, His life for theirs. So let's pick up where we left off last week. And instead of looking at the story for signs of hope, we'll look at the story as a love story. In chapter 4 of Genesis, the curse of that sin was made quite evident. Cain killed his brother Abel. Why? Because Abel's sacrifice was accepted. His was rejected. And rather than making it right and doing it right, he killed the thing that made him look wrong, which was his brother. That's supposed to be a love story, right? It is. But not from this side. Chapters 5 and 6, we see this one family's dysfunction. That'd be Adam, Eve, their two boys. The first murderer, only the left. By the time you get to chapter 5, we're reading of the descendants, lineage, family tree, and so forth. In chapter 6, verse 5, 
Bible tells us that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Do love stories involve grief? The good ones do. If the grief is overcome. And in this case, it's not said that the runaway is grieving, but the one ran away from. To think that the heart of God is grieving over his creation in his own image. But that's what it tells us. It would take a universal flood to fix this, or at least to blot out the greatest of wickedness. Though a remnant of faithfulness was preserved in an ark prepared for the purpose, you know about this. And then from Noah's descendants, his family ate inside the ark. We read another section of the family tree, and it's getting much larger. The families described not in its numbers, but by its nations, spread across the earth in chapter 11, where they organized to build a tower all the way up to heaven to make a name for themselves. That's what they said. Well, they're supposed to be under the name of God. So they're on their own. They've organized themselves against their maker, so God confounds their languages to slow them down. And from this point, God wouldn't deal with the world directly. He would deal with the world indirectly through one specific group of people. And that's where the four major events, the first half of Genesis, creation, fall, flood, Babel, go to a personalized story with individual names. Four events, but then there are four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. If you can remember those things, you can outline Genesis and get a hundred on a quiz. When we follow those four names, it's Abraham who God chooses to begin this people group. Abraham was worshiping idols at the time. And then all of a sudden he's told to go somewhere he doesn't even know where he's going but he does it and then it's his son Isaac who gives a grandson named Jacob whose 12 sons will comprise 12 tribes of this special group of people and it's Joseph one of those 12 that God will work through miraculously almost check out that love story from his brother's But he's in a position in Egypt to save this group of people from starvation. And they move there, begin to multiply again, until a Pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. So God works through a man named Moses. And when Moses hits the stage, he's able to deliver them from bondage in Egypt and deliver them safely to a promised land across a Red Sea and a desert with everything this people group ever needed and a good deal of what they could have ever wanted. Now it's sounding more like a love story, right? This is, this is good. The story of God's love for his special people. But again, we can't get distracted. This is miserably a one-sided relationship. God pursues his people, but they wander. They complain a lot. 
Think back to Sunday school, flannel graph. These people wandering in the wilderness. They even despise his favor. They dislike the arrangements in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. It's not a one-day trip. It's a 40-year trip. They don't like the food. They don't like the water. They don't like their tents. Even though they're living in a desert where there's nothing, they never went hungry. They never went thirsty. Their clothing or shoes never wore out. That's tough just to restrict yourself to one pair of shoes, but to think they last for 40 years. How long have you had those shoes? Well, all my life, basically. (laughs) Their enemies never overtook them for an entire generation. Joshua picks up the narrative where Exodus concludes. People of Israel inhabit that land of promise. The scriptures describe this as full of cities they did not build, houses full of good things they did not fill, wells they did not dig, vineyards and olive groves they did not plant. And just as they had been warned not to do when everything is great, they forgot all about who got them there. And then we flip over to the book of Judges. You may remember our series in the book of Judges, the dark ages of Israel's history. By the time you get to verse 10 of chapter 2, after a description of the conquest and inhabitation of the land, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So everyone that saw the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and the opening of the Red Sea and the, the plagues and the manna in the morning and the water out of the rock, the snake and how it was going to kill us all, but we looked at the brazen brass snake and were healed. All that generation's gone. And in its place, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So how can this be understood as a love story when one side of the relationship is completely unaware of the existence of the other side? Now, this isn't really the way our relationships work. This, this, is, this is an enigma almost. Because there may very well be a time between a man and a woman who are married where one of them is aware of the other, but the other's not. Now, this love at first sight stuff, you know, where there's maybe only a fraction of a second between one being aware of the other, Sometimes there's a long period of time. I actually thought that I had noticed my wife before she noticed me. Until we got to know each other better. I was very late (laughs) to that whole thing. But isn't that like the man to think, this is, this is mine, you know. There's quite a difference between our age, but she had quite a head start. This relationship, that one-sided interest, happened in the middle of it. How would you define that other than estrangement? Amnesia? I mean, are there such a thing as a relationship that goes sour, estranged, and then forgotten totally wasn't forgotten totally of course 
but for all intents and purposes it was. Then by the time you get to 1 Samuel, these people want a king, and for all the wrong reasons, not the right reasons. God said it was a bad move. They, they hired the wrong guy, too. They wanted to be like other nations, not for someone to help them reestablish their relationship to their creator. And then as those kings were chosen, Saul didn't listen. David listened. His son Solomon halfway listened. His sons never listened and split the kingdom over power struggles. And then you get to the portion of the Old Testament that's its longest. And aside from some poetry, which are love songs by a shepherd, and some narrative stories, it's basically God's warning, reminder, correction through the voice of the prophets. We had a deal. We had a covenant. I privileged you among all people. My rules were simple. My blessings were lavish. But you've disobeyed. I can't change the rules. I am holy. You are not. My law is love. But it's quite inflexible. And of all the analogies of the prophets to describe the relationship between Israel and her God, the most graphic is that of unfaithfulness, an unfaithful bride to her husband, a good husband. One, one of the, the illustrations from one of the larger prophets, I would feel safe saying, is, is not for general audiences, mature audience. I'll be careful, but it starts with the image of a child left abandoned in a field to die in its own afterbirth. God rescues this unwanted child and says, live. Cleans it up, takes it home, raises it with the best of everything. And when she is of age, if you allow a euphemism that can veil its details, adopts for herself the oldest profession in the world and wastes and squanders everything that was given to her with others who only wanted her for one thing. And by the end of this long, detailed, and graphic explanation, God, through the voice of the prophet, says, in one way you're you're exceptional in your waywardness because The whole world in this regard is paid for those services. But you actually pay to be with those who not only don't love you and use you for only one thing, but to be somewhere other than with the one who loves you most. That's the way this love story is described. 
And then if, if that's an awful story of what could have been someplace, somewhere else, fictionalized, but a, quite a picture, there's a man named Hosea who the voice of the Lord said, you're not going to just tell stories. You're going to live these stories. I want you to go take for yourself a wife of, from slavery. You will need to purchase her from the slave block. She'll be unfaithful to you and run away a lot. And you'll go back each time. You'll have to pay off her indebtedness to the one she ran away with and buy her back again and again and again to illustrate to the people to whom you minister, this is what you do to the God who loves you more than anything else. This is the love story the scriptures tell us. This is a departure from the flannel graph in Sunday school, right? And it would be different if our lives didn't resemble this enough to at least know this is true. This is right. This is my heart. It's just as broken and just as much under a curse as these people who saw this God with their eyes, heard his voice with their ears. But this is the way it works. And at the end of the book of Hosea, there's a couple of poems, but basically, to summarize, God would say through the prophet that he knew that their repentance would never last, that the cycle would continue in perpetuity, but that he would heal their waywardness and love them freely and for that to happen, it would require an act of his grace on his part and not theirs. That they couldn't help it. That to fix it, he would have to do something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. And not only how, we know that, but the why, that, that, that's the big question. David already took us through it. Why would God do that? Because God loved the world so much. He loved the world, so he gave his son, so that whoever believes can be brought back home and need not perish. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a counselor. I haven't studied. Would you believe it that when I was in high school, I was so afraid of public speaking, I felt I was probably a shoe-in for a ministerial position. I'll just do counseling. And by the time I got back from college, I thought, people are too messed up for me to want to do that. <laughs> and I'm one of them. I can't detangle that knotted mess. So I'll rather talk publicly where I get to talk and everybody gets to listen. <laughs> where the other is just listening and very little talking. I didn't think my way through it then, but it has made more sense going on. All I have as far as experience would be a couple of decades of full-time ministry. I wish I could tell you that by the time people come to a church office seeking counsel, they usually find the help they need. That wouldn't be true. By the time people get to the church asking for help, usually it's so ingrained 
I can remember even finding out that on numerous occasions my father would be asked to provide counseling only to later be able to put in a report in court documents that they sought counseling to speed up the separation. In my limited experience, unless both parties are committed to restoration, it's all but over. It's a matter of time. We're human. We're broken. This is, this is not what we're, we're even equipped for, much less good at. If you have any meaningful relationships, it's the gift of God, and it's the common grace of God that people who don't know him can get along with each other. That just seems to be the, the, the way it is, and, and you have to grow up to at least to a certain age to realize that the ones you love the most are usually the ones you wind up hurting the deepest to your own pain and suffering. What do we do about it? Well, if in the pages of Scripture we find what we lack, and if we give it a thorough examination, we find out that we're hopelessly lacking it. If you just back up, you're in 2 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 13, my chapter heading is the way of love. And this isn't that Paul the Apostle didn't know what to do in chapter 13, so he brought out some of his counseling notes from a wedding ceremony. No, this fits our wedding ceremonies because we ask the Lord, please give us what it'll take to survive it. This is not us. This is the Lord speaking. Love, God's love is patient. This is verse 4, and kind. We're not patient or kind. Love does not envy or boast. Ours is full of it. It's not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Means it doesn't keep score but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's the amazing part of it. How come it hasn't ended? Forget us. This isn't, this isn't our side of the lopsided love story between God and his creation. This is on God's side. We're not talking about some high schooler with his head in his hands crying because his first crush dumped him. This is the broken heart of the creator of the universe who relentlessly pursues those who are bent on getting away from him. And these things that we just read are the way he feels about us. And treats us. His love never fails. Ours never gets off the ground. We sing about this stuff. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And if by the time we're not through at least the Old Testament part of this love story without understanding 
the situation we're in. The Gospels and the Epistles map it out in detail. Now, this isn't a Christmas song, but I think it's one of the best to articulate the situation we find ourselves in after we have heard the good news of great joy, which we'll talk about next week. It goes like this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. No condemnation now I dread, Jesus, and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. So love was present in the garden. That was last week. Love was spoken through the ages, through the prophets, through the law, priests, kings, and prophets. But next week we're going to learn that love came down at Christmas. And that's when all these sketches become clear. This God who made us and this man who died for us is the same guy. Amazing love, how can it be? So let's end where we started. Love came down at Christmas. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, So much to think about, but so much to feel. As the truth of your word prompts acknowledgement that what is being said about you is true and what is being said about us is true. And the result is we need you more than we ever know. Lord, thank you for coming at Christmas. That your love never ends. That instead of throwing us away, which would not violate your holiness in one bit. Lord, you brought us back to yourself. At your own personal cost. Because you loved us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for your word. Thank you for one another. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.